Hello, and welcome to AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. I'm your host, John S. Today we meet Cope C. from the Mini Paths Group in Urbana, Illinois. In this episode, Cope shares her experience, strength, and hope, and we discuss some exciting plans for AA Beyond Belief. Good morning, Cope. How you doing? Good morning. I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm doing excellent, and thank you very much for uh, agreeing to do the podcast with us today. I'm glad to do it. And also, thank you very much for all the help that you give us on AA Beyond Belief. Well, you know, I'm enjoying it. It's it's very interesting. It pushes me. Yeah, it's it's an amazing experience, quite frankly. I never, yeah. I didn't know, you know, what I was getting into when Roger first kind of decided he was going to get out of AA Agnostica. And it's like, whoa, this is incredible. And then doing the podcast, you know, I swear to God, a couple of years ago, I don't even think I really knew what a podcast was. I never really listened to him or anything. Yeah. And, and now it's turned I, out to be like this huge experience. Well, you know, I did a lot of radio work and radio interviewing. I discovered it was like 20 years ago I started and I just discovered how much fun it is to interview people and people just love to be on air. Yeah. There's some, there's some kind of power about that. So it's an amazing experience to do yeah. the interviewing. I, um, I've never ever had any kind of training or ever done anything like it before. And it's very interesting because I'll like, um, I'll listen to a podcast that I've done and I'll recognize, wow, I'm not really listening to the person. I didn't pick up on, you know, something that he said. I didn't, I didn't do a follow up or whatever. And what it's done, it's helped me become just a better listener in just my everyday life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so speaking of listening. Yes. Why don't we start, Cope, if you don't mind, um, just telling us your, your AA story, and we'll just kind of go from there and see, see what happens. Okay. <clears throat> well, AA was not actually part of my getting sober. I came into AA 10 years after I got sober. Uh, I think it was, it was the trappings of AA that I really just didn't uh, I, I didn't feel comfortable with all the God stuff and it didn't feel like my life was in sync with most of the people that I ran into at the meetings that I tried. So alcohol for me was not a crash and burn kind of thing. It was, um, it was my secret salve. It was, uh, the way I relaxed, got my confidence, got giggly, all the things that my family, I, <clears throat> well, I grew up in a family where alcohol was, was the highlight of the day, but it was, it was a very civilized thing. My father drank steadily and increasingly, but he was always functional. He was a very smart, very charming guy, and alcohol was just what made life, it, it gave it that certain sizzle. And I was a very shy kid. I was, I was, small. I was awkward. I was not athletic. I'm the youngest of three. And they all seemed to be, you know, ahead of me in that. And my parents were the jazz age couple, you know, they ever when they started dancing, the whole room would go quiet and just watch them. Yeah. And they were they were the ultimate party people, but in a very charming way. Yeah. And I was a dismal failure. And I was terrified of everything. And in my family, you didn't talk about things. Mm -hmm. You didn't talk about insecurity. You didn't talk about feeling awkward. So I just thought I would. I didn't fit, mm -hmm. and uh, I I didn't know. You know, and I was kind of marginalized for that. I was I was little cope. I was, 
you know, sort of in the corner hiding and doing my little domestic stuff and my little Mm -hmm. craft things. And I wasn't part of the flow. But then um, there was a party and my mother said, you know, I would always hang out on the edges and feel so painfully shy. And my mother, as usual, tried to force a glass of wine on me and I finally drank one. And all of a sudden, wow, there I was. Mm -hmm. I had a warm, happy inside and I could kind of get through all of my awkwardness and join in join in the party. So I discovered that alcohol was a great crutch mm-hmm. and that's what it was. Drinking to excess happened to me very early. Like the first time I remember being, I think, 15 years old. And I said to my brother, who was two years older, how do I get drunk? I was at a party and he gave me this gigantic boiler maker, half bourbon, half beer, and I drank it. And I remember being out sitting in the grass in the, in the rain, kind of hallucinating. And, and this, this, it was this magical world and then being t- as sick as a dog the mm-hmm. next day. I just totally wiped out. So excess started very, very early, but I also very highly valued being in control. So I didn't want to be out of control in public. So I would drink and, you know, play with the limits and drink enough to get comfortable. But then, you know, it, it sneaked up on me, I think, mm-hmm. like, like most of us. And my life unfolded. I, I, I was in a career. I was moving along. I, um, you know, I was learning to function in a, in a, a highly uh, functioning, academic, high-achieving context. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was doing okay, but I was terrified underneath it all. And another addiction sort of sneaked up on me, um, you know, food and enjoying meals and carefree. I think carefree was the watchword in our family. You weren't supposed to have any consequences for anything. And so I fell into the food thing. But guess what? I gained weight. So mm-hmm. I would eat wonderful treats. And my mother was not a nurturing person. So I learned to sneak food when she was out of the house, when I was young. Mm-hmm. And I learned that food kind of gave me that warm and cuddly feeling, but it wasn't okay to eat too much and it wasn't okay to gain weight. Right. It's okay to look out of control. So I sneaked up through the back door. I discovered um, bulimia. Mm-hmm. And before it was a thing, you know, there wasn't a word bulimia. It was it was called, aner- what was it called? It was bulimorexia. That's okay. what it was. Wow. But I didn't know that existed. All I knew was that I needed to eat to calm myself down and um, and to feel delicious and warm inside. But then I had to do something about it. So I became a very uh, I became a raging bulimic in college when I was when I had moved out of the house and I was on my own. That was how I took care of myself. I didn't mm-hmm. know how other than that. So that was my first really powerful addiction, but drinking goes along with bulimia. And as I got older and my friends were drinking and partying, uh, that's, you know, I, I kind of, these, these two little nasty addictions sort of got a, a bigger hold on me and I began to lose control with both of them. Yeah. And that went on for a long time. I was bulimic for 10 years. And I've been dosy doing with alcohol for well over 50 years. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
You know, I've been told, I don't know uh, a lot about it, but I've been told that bulimia and anorexia are some of the most deadly um, addictions, diseases. I mean, that the, the, the death deadly rate. Kill you? Yes. Or deadly as in they get a grip. Yep. And that they kill you. <clears throat> well, I didn't have that problem with bulimia. You know, somehow I've always figured out how to do things so that it didn't have a bad consequence. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't ruin my teeth. I didn't ruin my digestive tract. Mm -hmm. I wasn't underweight. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't destroy my health. I was very conscious of making sure that I had enough nutrition because mm -hmm. I was also, you know, I was an exercise junkie. I had to keep my spirits up. I had to perform in jobs that were pretty high functioning jobs. I had to look good and I had to know what I was doing. Oh, okay. So I had to hold it together and I did. Uh, you know, by my fingernails clinging, mm. it got harder and harder. And then I met a man who, uh, you know, we, we jibed and he was 20 years older and he saw this, you know, he, he, he fell in love with my spirit, but he saw the little scared kid behind it. Mm -hmm. And he, we, we got closer and closer and I had you know, I had always broken off with relationships because I couldn't ever, ever, ever tell anybody that I threw up, that I was out of control. That was just too disgusting. Mm -hmm. But finally, one day I realized after some really bad fights, when he saw me shut it, you know, slamming the door in his face, um, I, I had to tell him what was going on. And there was one dramatic night. We had a major fight over dinner, over drinks, over eating too much and drinking too much on the way to the opera. Wow. And we just realized, you know, we were fighting and it was awful. And what was I? I was like 28 years old. And so he was like 49. Uh, we were in the subway going home and it was noisy and crashing and, you know, millions of people around. And something in me made me pull him down and say and sit in the middle of the subway and say, OK, this is what's going on with me. And he was completely fascinated and gripped. You know, the funny thing is he was afraid I was a lesbian. Uh -huh. he, so he thought he thought this was a dead end and he better break it off. But when he found out that that was my problem, he said, ah, oh, this is fine. We can take care of this. So um, I got into self-help groups. You know, uh -huh. I was still shut down so tight. There was no way I could have talked to a therapist. Yeah. I had to open up in little teeny weeny weeny increments. Um, and, you know, I was shut down sexually. I was shut down emotionally. All the all the raw material was there. And I had a lot there because my parents gave me a very rich life. And we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of exploration. I had a lot of interests. I loved to have a good time. So I had all that inside me. I just couldn't let it out. I couldn't let in any kind of nurturing because I didn't know what nurturing was until this man started nurturing me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I hate to say, yes, romance dragged me out of it, but that was the key. That was what opened it up. And that was a, that was a long, long journey. First I got through bulimia, but then neither, you know, I didn't think alcohol was a problem, but that was how, uh, Walter and I relaxed and had mm -hmm. a good time. He came out of the same drinking um, society that my parents did because he was almost my parents' age. Mm -hmm. So so we did that. 
And it snuck up on me over the years, and I had times when I drank way too much and blacked out and hangovers, and it just sort of steadily happened. And then it caught up with me. We had a kid. I was a mother. Um, and every night coming home, I would have to have a drink to relax. And then I started sneaking alcohol into the office and keeping it in brown paper bags in the refrigerator and worrying that people could smell it on my breath. And, you know, all that stuff started happening. And I realized I had a problem. But I had a good life and I had the support system to get me through it. Mm -hmm. So one day, I well, what happened was I was running for office. I decided to run for school board because there were problems in the town. We had moved to a university town and our daughter was in second grade and there were real racial problems in the schools. And we had gotten involved with with race relations in various places and had moved to a town where it was a major problem. Oh, and, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. And the two of us sort of joined in that and, and discovered, you know, I've always been attracted to people on the outskirts mm -hmm. who, who were rejected because I always felt like an outsider. Mm -hmm. And so something about being black and, and, you know, an outcast in America attracted me. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to find out about that. And I wanted to open those doors. So I ran for school board on the platform of um, looking at racism in the schools. And um, I realized I that I had to go door to door every night after dinner. That was the magic time. I would start drinking when I got home and I would not stop. Walter would stop. He would, you know, move on to whatever he was doing that evening, but not me. I would mm -hmm. fill a mug with red wine and sit there and just sort of sip away and then wait until everybody else went to bed and keep sipping and sipping. And then finally just go to bed and wake up hungover as hell in the morning. And I couldn't do that dance and run for politics. And something about politics was new and exciting. I always mm -hmm. loved new, exciting, slightly dangerous things. I was always drawn to danger. And I said, I can't do this and drink. So there was a day when I said, okay, that's it. And I did go to an alcoholic, an AA meeting, mm -hmm. stay. Uh, and it was one of your typical down and dirty. It was the noontime meeting when all the, 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 the real down and outs would gather in this real beat up room. And, mm -hmm. you know, there was nobody I could talk to. And, the you know, you, I was afraid to sit out on, sit down on the couch. It oh, was wow. Like, that kind of reminds me of my old home group, actually. Yeah, you know, you know what those rooms yeah, are. Yeah, like. I do. And people reading the Bible stuff, and now, you know, that's weird. That I, I never used to see that. But what yeah, the Bible reading and well, it wasn't the Bible; it was the big book. Oh, the big book, yeah. <laughs> that's that's okay, as I gotcha. far as I was concerned, it was a big blue book. It was as bad as the Bible. Oh, you're and right. You're right. I had a lot of anger toward the church from growing up in a missionary family with very judgmental men, mm -hmm. telling me that as a small woman I was not equal. I was. I was flawed. I was, you know, original sin. And I somehow knew that that shame and that guilt were not good things, but right. I had never talked about it. I just knew that religion did not serve me as mm -hmm. I saw it. And so I rejected it. You know, I was my father's daughter. I, he was an atheist. Mm -hmm. My mother sang in the church choir, so we spent a lot of time in church, but the beliefs never filtered into my family. But I rejected the church. Yeah. And so I rejected AA too because it was too close to all that stuff. Well, that and makes sense, it yeah, because it totally well, looks like religion. It did. 
It did. And I did not see the strength of AA. I did not relate to people whose stories uh, seemed like mine. And I tried a few meetings and then I just said, forget it. I'm doing this on my own. And I did for 10 years. Um, then life went on. Um, and you know, I was sober and, and things were okay. My husband was getting older and he was getting fragile and, and needing me to really be the caretaker. Mm -hmm. And I think something inside me knew that I needed to build my own life because I needed to be okay without him telling me I was okay. Right. I still never felt like I was a whole person unless I was with someone who made me whole, like my mother and father, the jazz age couple. I was okay when I was in their sunlight. I was okay when I was with Walter, who was a magical, wonderful guy, mm -hmm. very enthusiastic, very loving, very inquisitive. And he and I made a whole couple. But I did not feel in my innermost self that I was complete. Right. Or that I was okay. And as he started stumbling, I kind of did things like I got a dog. You know, I got dogs to play with because he and I couldn't walk together anymore. And I needed, I needed a, you know, that, that affection and that love and somebody to get me out there exercising so I wouldn't get fat. <laughs> you know, all that stuff was still happening. And I got myself a little damaged dog from a friend, a little Australian shepherd who was so hyper. And she nipped. She was a problem dog. But a friend had given her to me. And I thought, well, we'll figure this out. And uh, I had started, well, my husband and I were, were off uh, at a place. I had retired by then. You know, it, I was inching up. I, I was 59 when I retired because my husband was older. I needed to stop working and be home with him. Mm -hmm. And I was able to. So that was, that was fortunate. And I was walking this dog out in the woods and she was so hyper. I let her off the leash and I wasn't paying attention and little self-destructive dog. She was, um, a car came along on this road where there usually weren't cars and she herded it like the Australian shepherd she was and it rolled her and she was screaming and yelping. And, you know, I was holding her in my arms and she bit my, my hands and, and, um, got her to the vet and she died. Aww. And something in me clicked. I realized that a small helpless being who had relied on me for its safety, um, I wasn't there. I said, you know, I don't have to follow the rules. I don't have to keep this dog on the leash because I want my dog to be free and wild. But my dog was free and wild in a way that was not safe. Mm -hmm. And my drinking had been free and wild in a way that was not safe. Mm. And I had stopped drinking, but that wild flaunting the rules part of me was still there. And there had been an incident when my daughter was young and we lived in a shared house for all kinds of reasons and had a, a housemate who was an alcoholic. And he did something beyond the limits with her. And when she was in kindergarten, she told a friend that he had touched her intimately. And the, the principal of the school called me and said, I have to report this. This is, you know, this is a mandated thing. And so... My daughter, in some way, was sexually abused. We never found out what. She's just like me. She holds it in really tight, and she 
uh, doesn't let things out. And I had put my daughter at risk. Mm. Uh, it's, you know, that's a long, complicated story, mm. but something in, in my mind clicked and said, I am still an alcoholic. I am still my father's daughter saying, I don't have to follow the rules. And I, and something in me said, I think I need to do the 12 steps. Wow. And, you know, I don't know, some, some angel was watching over me and said, you know, look, you better figure this out because your husband is not going to be able to take care of you. And I needed to get rid of that load of black, dark shame for all those years when I stole, when I drank, when I lied, when I mm -hmm. slept around, when I did all the things that alcoholics and young scared mm -hmm. people do. And I went to an AA meeting. And I told them the story of this dog, and I was brokenhearted. And they looked at me, and they knew exactly what I was saying. Yeah. And they knew exactly how I felt. And I got the support I needed. And so I worked my way into AA slowly. I found meetings with women, with people more like me. Mm -hmm. And um, I just ignored the God stuff. Yeah. That's really interesting. So when you went to AA the first time, before you you left for the ten years, did you you learned enough about it that you you like were really aware of the steps, and so you were you were very familiar with AA then? No, I wasn't very familiar. Okay. I I knew about the twelve steps. You know, I I honestly I have intuition deep inside that knows a whole lot more than I do, uh -huh. and something in my gut related this pain to alcohol. And when my father was dying, I went to Al-Anon and I get that was the missing piece. Um, he, he had died. Oh, maybe this was a few years before this incident with my dog. Mm -hmm. And I knew that my father and alcohol were, were, a uh, an unsolved problem in my life and in his life. And my brother died an alcoholic uh, a couple years after my father. And Al-Anon got me through mm -hmm. those two times. And I think the people in Al-Anon, you know, now that I'm remembering, yes, that's what got me, mm -hmm. knowing that the program had something to offer. Just people sitting wise in a room, whether they were the drinkers or whether they were the families of the drinkers, they knew what this was all about. Right. And I knew there there was something that could help me. Yep. Yeah, that is interesting. It's the it I a lot of that is is similar to my story in that it was um the connection I had with the people really that that drew me into AA and I was fairly young when I was first starting out and I was not one that would um go get help elsewhere. I I was kind of like you. I needed to get into it little by little and start trusting people. Um, but I kind of fell into the big book stuff right away um, because I didn't have the I didn't really have a lot of experience with religion. So I didn't I didn't really know what I was getting into. I think AA was my first experience with religion, to be honest with you. And I made it my religion for a long time. But what I find interesting, too, about you, Cook, when I was reading your story, you actually um, did end up reading the big book and studying and going through the steps through the big book, didn't you? I needed to do it the right way. I needed to follow the rules for the mm -hmm. first time in my life. Mm -hmm. And the sponsor that I found is a very religious woman. And I said to her, you know, look, I'm not. And mm -hmm. she she kind of didn't know what that meant. But she was, you know, she was a, a, a staunch AA person. Mm -hmm. And I she just saw I was someone in need. 
You know, it, I've always felt a little on the outskirts with AA because I don't need it to be sober. Right. And when I first came in and people were telling their stories, I hadn't had a drink for 10 years. Mm-hmm. That was not a problem for me. Mm-hmm. My husband always drank. You know, there was liquor around the house. I, I just knew that was something I was never going to do again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had other problems, and they were the problems that the alcohol had, had masked over. Yep, and but, I think that's probably true for most of us, if not all of us. I think, I think that's what keeps me in AA, you know, now. Learn the what help, helps me learn about myself through other people. Yeah, but I do find that interesting that that you did as a non-believer, as one who really didn't want to pay attention to the big book, that you did actually start reading it. And I like that because it's something I want to kind of do. With, I think it's important for people to know the big book. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think I need the damn big book really. But it's good to know for just your basic what AA is all about and and to learn the steps. But you can read it as literature and draw your own stuff from it. Well, another thing that I did that was very useful was the first group I found that was my steady group when I had come back did the Joe and Charlie tapes. Oh, wow. And listening to those was really helpful to me, listening to these these two gritty old guys laughing about their lives and uh-huh. about about the steps in real life. Yeah. You know, reading the book, I still don't relate to the stories. I've still never read the rest of the big book beyond page 164. Yeah. I, I just don't relate to the stories. They piss me off, frankly. Yeah. The way they talk about women and wives and gay people and... Yeah, it's totally weird. It's got, I mean, it's totally, um, God dang, I, I, I hear you. That that book is just way too old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. The, the language is offensive and it's it, it, it people can't connect or relate to it anymore. It's crazy that that's the book that they're using. I mean, I can, I'm, I don't, I, I'm conflicted about that book. I mean, it's not the book that I think that we should rely on as our, our as our recovery tool for the, the year 2016. But it doesn't mean that we should just completely throw it away. I think it's I can respect it for what it was at its place in time, I guess. But um, I don't know. It's I mean, just, I, there's some very basic stuff in there that we can build on and take from, like the twelve steps. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff you yeah. can draw from those steps. Yeah. So how did you deal with it? How did you deal with the big book when you went through it? Well, it was what I had to do. I, my my sponsor was terrific. Uh-huh. She just had a system. She called me up. She said, this is how I do it. And we had to read four. We read pages one through 164 together in six weeks, uh, four pages a day. And I had questions I had to write down. I had homework and Uh then I would meet with her once a week and we would talk about it. And then the way she did it was we did the 12 steps in one weekend. Wow. Or rather, we did steps one through eight in one weekend. And I knew that that was the only way I was going to get through them. Uh-huh. When I would hear people talk in meetings about, you know, spending six months on step one, I knew that if I really thought about step one, I was going to fall off the, the cart. Yeah. So I just said, fine, that's what we're going to do. And, and that's the best way for me to do it. And so I, <clears throat> you know, I read the big book as as an assignment. Uh-huh. Four pages a day was was manageable and the language w- I could deal with it. Uh-huh. And I just didn't question it. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So then yeah. you went you went through the steps that weekend. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's pretty cool. And then she gave me two weeks to do my amends. I looked at her like, are you crazy? This is a lifetime's worth of of lousy things. How am I going to go back and make amends for things in my 20s in two weeks? Uh She just looked at me and said, that's what you're going to do. And so, you know, I, I, of course, I didn't do everything. And there's some I still haven't really done. And that was what four years ago, five years ago, you know, I should really go back and do the whole thing again. But I did enough to say I have done the 12 steps. Absolutely. I wonder if that was the back to basics approach, what you did. Uh, Well, it wasn't back to basics. It's a it's a curriculum that is a it it comes all the way down from from Bill W. It's, Uh you know, there there's like a, a family lines chart that I'm on. Uh huh. So it's just a specific way of doing it. That's really interesting. Yeah. I tell you, AA is pretty fascinating, all the different varieties and experiences yeah. that people have mm. and the way that, that you do things. And then your group also, you listen to the Joe and Charlie tapes. Did you do that during the meetings? Yes. That's pretty interesting, too. I, You know, I actually saw those guys. Um, I, I went to something in Arkansas, an AA thing, Springtime in Ozarks, I think they called it. And they were there. They did step four. And it was really, actually really helpful to me. Wow. They said, well, that's that's the key step, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I can't remember what the hell they said. Oh, I know what they said. It was really stupid. But I mean, it's it's real basic stuff. But for me, it was like earthbreaking. Like I never heard this before in my life. This is, you know, they broke down the word resentment, I think is what they did. And they, they talked about how it's refueling something. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, for some reason, that really um, helped me. Um understand that because for some reason i always connected a resentment to anger and not necessarily is that the case it's just something that i yeah. feel it could be any any kind of painful memory from the past right. yeah it's it's funny in my home group which is the only agnostic group uh in town uh a, a young kid brought up we needed a topic we were scrounging around for a topic and he said well i just got a sponsor and i'm doing the fourth step let's talk about that so we went around the room and all talked about it and i remembered years ago, you know, and I thought, gee, I really should go back and look at what I wrote down. And I think it would probably be a very good idea to do it again. Mm -hmm. Because I'm quite a different person from the person I was when I first did that. Thanks thanks to AA. I've actually done that. I And I think it's not a bad idea every once in a while to stop and and do that. Yeah. Um, I do sometimes just over, oh, just little... (laughs) Parts of my life, maybe like maybe I'm having problems at work. I've, that's something I've done recently. I had I had a boss I was really having problems with, so I kind of took a look at my feelings connected to that my situation with my boss, and it kind of helped me a little bit, you know, kind of at least understand where how it was affecting me, so yeah. that I could kind of deal with it a little bit better when I went to work. So I do kind yeah. of do that little mini inventories from time to time. Well, and you know, work is the ultimate place. My sponsor kept telling me about all these resentments she had at, at work. And of course you have resentments at mm-hmm. work. People are idiots when they're at work. Yep. And, you know, I'm retired, so I don't have to deal with that <laughs> anymore. Um, you know, nobody's rubbing it in my face. You yeah. Know, how they want to control me. Yeah, that's so nice. See, I work is tough <laughs> for me because I don't, I mean, I don't mind my job so much, but it's, it's not something that I... I, it's not something I love. I just do it because I have to make a paycheck yeah. and I have to deal with 
the, the, the stuff that goes on there. But the people around me are very nice. You know, the company's okay and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's, I, it's, I am not very passionate about it. So I just want to do my time and go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, well, but, it's a very good place to practice resentments. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. Cause there are, that's the funny thing about it. And it's also where I'm at in my life right now. Cause I don't really care. I'm in my fifties. I, I'm not really tr- care. I don't care about climbing the corporate ladder or anything, but there's a lot of people at work that do. I mean, and they want to go in the meetings and they want to be the best guy in the meeting. And, and they know? want to stand on your head. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I really don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yeah. really don't. And, and that's kind of bad because, you know, I guess, you know, maybe I should care to some extent, but I am kind of honest to, with, with at least my manager down there. I tell her, you know, I really don't, I don't want to go any further. I'm okay. <laughs> so, but it's kind of funny because there's always that tension. There's always the people that want to, um, you know, show that that they're the up and coming person and they've got the great ideas and and if you don't really care i guess it's okay but to a certain extent you know then then other people you, you feel like other people are putting judgments on you it's a, it's a mess so yeah work, well, work it's, can be it's also just a whole lot of people who really don't have much in common forced to be together eight hours a That's day five days a week That's and true. their worst selves are going to come out Oh yeah, you're right about that. It's, I I spend a lot of time in a in a prison program working with guys in a in a maximum medium prison. We put together a newsletter and mm-hmm. just listening to those guys and what it's like in prison. What in a with a in a cell with another with another man in a ten by foot cell. You know what you do with that many hours cooped up with with another person that you really don't know like anything. That it, is interesting. It, it, the principles of AA are very useful to me in talking to these guys about what they deal with. Yeah. You know, I did that for a little while. I went to a, it was a medium security prison in Kansas where we took meetings. And I found that very, very interesting. Um, one thing that I got from it that kind of surprised me, but of course I was on the outside, you know, I wasn't that close to the prison itself. But anyway, one thing that, that surprised me about it is I, I grew to respect the people that ran the prison. I mean, the um, like the, I guess, the wardens and stuff like that, because I got to meet them. And it seemed like they really cared about their what they were charged with doing. Well, you're lucky. Yeah, it seemed that way. But of course, they, I was part of the public, and maybe they were trying to put on a show for me. But it really seemed to me like, wow, these people really want to make a difference in yeah. other people's lives. And I thought... I wasn't expecting that. Well, I I also do a women's AA in a county jail, our county jail, and the the um, officers there are much friendlier. You know, it's not such a high stakes place. Yeah, that probably is a difference too, Cope, because mine was a medium security prison. It 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 didn't have the big wall; just had a fence. That makes a difference. So, you guys take meetings to to the is it is it a maximum security prison? Uh, this, that's not meetings. That's a university program. So that's not AA. Oh, cool. I spend time in the prison. I, but I do women's AA in our county jail. Oh. So I'm sure that there are AA meetings in the prison. Uh, I don't know who does them. The, the guys themselves may do them. They do a lot of counseling with each other. Yeah, that could be, that could be. Some uh, some states are probably having a problem with AA right now in the prisons because of the religious um, aspect of it. And you can't really force people to, to go or whatever. I guess they can do it on their own, though. Yeah, I'm supposed to, um, in uh, I'm in my district here, in my AA district, I'm supposed to be the corrections treatment and bridge the gap chair. So yeah. I need to kind of learn about 
um, institutions and prisons and jails. And I mean, I've been in jails as a, I've been locked up in jails before just for short times. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good experience. I'm sure I, it hasn't happened to me. Well, I guess it's not <laughs> a great thing ha- when it happens at the time, but you know, at least it gives you some interesting stories to tell in AA meetings. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're all different is what I have learned. And the, the laws, the requirements, the restrictions are all totally different. Yeah. So not you you don't learn about there's not a general jail savvy uh and you and you're at the mercy of the personalities of the specific uh administrators that you deal with. So um how did you find you guys actually you were you one of the people that helped start the uh mini pats group? No, I'm not. Okay. <clears throat> I came in later. Okay. I was still pretty new to AA uh, in this community when many paths started. I just wasn't in the inner circles, and I didn't know the people who started it. And okay. so I heard about it, and and I kept thinking, oh, I'm going to go. And then and then I went. Okay. And I had never had a home group before because I'm a you know I'm a a, a happy outsider. I didn't want to be too up close and personal with anything, but. I finally decided, you know, if I'm going to be responsible about anything, this is the group I will be responsible about. So I, it is my home group. And it's an interesting group. It, the, the population changes a lot. It does not have the stability of my favorite groups in town. Mm-hmm. I think because it's new and because a lot of people come through trying it out. Right. And a lot of people come with with very different takes on AA and the program. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people come in with a real attitude about religion and God, and that's what they want to rant about. Mm. Other people get really sick of hearing those rants. So we, it's a, you know, I think the agnostic um, framework for a meeting gives it a certain kind of instability just as part of, as part of the process at least that's my experience here now. I think if, you're right. Um, if, we had, if we had more than one agnostics meeting and if we had a, a very steady, strong membership uh, over years, it would be different. But we just don't have that. Yeah, it, you're right, though. It's very, very um, different, especially like with our group the very first year, because we did have a lot of people that came in very angry either about AA or about religion in general. They had some bad experiences and there were a lot of meetings about that, that, that really, you know, when I, when I'm around that now, I really can't stand it. But, um, I think there's sometimes people do need to get, kind of get that out of their system. But, um, I think that our meeting, I, we've been going on for two years now and we've grown a lot. We've got like now seven meetings a week two different groups, seven meetings a week. And there's probably oh. over a hundred of us now all together in our community. Well, that's uh, big. That's yeah. bigger than we are. But the meetings have changed a lot over the last um, couple of years. I mean, just the, like you say, the, um, the people who go, I mean, we, for, it seems like for the first year we had like a real regular core group of people, pretty large core group of people a lot of those people aren't coming anymore and now we're kind of getting a whole new wave of people coming in and so the meeting population is kind of changing a little bit we do get kind of like a steady stream of newcomers and i think like your group we probably get some people just want to see what it's kind of all about too yeah they they come in yeah and it's funny when new people come in 
I feel very responsible to show them that this is a good meeting and that yeah. we can, we can, you know, and it, I, I feel sort of like mother hen <laughs> and, you know, it, if it's not a good meeting, I say, Oh, drat, you know, yeah. I, I really wanted them to, to think they could get what they needed here. Yeah. That's funny. I'm the same way. And at my old home group, um, I was not like that at all. I could, you know, I was like, yeah, I guess I want people to have a good experience or anything, but it, what, I didn't really have a whole lot vested into it. Like if it was a bad meeting where I was, oh, whatever, you know, or, or if they didn't, if people didn't treat a newcomer right, you know, I think, well, that, you know, but now I take it really seriously. I, I want, I want every meeting just to be the best. I want the newcomers yeah. to have the best possible experience. I want them to feel welcome and comfortable. And so I guess that's good to have that, have that. It is, it. but we don't have control. We can't we play God. You know that. <laughs> no, you can't. Yeah. And people and people come when they're ready. Yep. Well, Cope, I think we have a pretty good conversation. Um, I guess one thing we could talk about if you want to, I don't know if, if you'd like to talk about it, any ideas that you might have about, you know, we've been kind of tossing around ideas about doing like an art section on yes. AA Beyond Belief. You have any ideas what you, what you want to kind of maybe do on that one down the road? Well, I just haven't actually pinned myself down to images so far. I'm yeah. thinking about it. I'm talking to other people. There there are some other people in the community, as you know, who yeah. are who are artists and are interested in contributing. I'm not sure what framework to start it with, because I I'm I'm almost tempted to make it fairly general and start uh with something like a step. And have a few different images about mm. that step. And I'm a person of text and images. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm always going to have an image and then explain what right. it is that image. And, and when you say it's beyond words, I'm just not a beyond words person. Right. But I want to have enough variety and enough interest that people feel they can contribute. Yep. And that it's kind of a, an open slate um, for people to be part of. Yep. And if you're just wandering around the web and you say, you know, well, what's what's the fourth step like visually? Yeah, and here, yeah. and and there's you know there's a picture of storm clouds and there's somebody's painting and there's a collage. I want to start with you know possibly half a dozen images, mm -hmm. and so. I, I th and I think they should be different styles. Yeah. I tend to do photography myself. I could do um, collage, but that's sort of a whole diff different step. Mm -hmm. I think it's such a good idea because you're right. We got so many talented people in our community. Yeah. Um, photographers, um, people. I've, I, one woman sent me, I'll have to show this to you. She sent me a picture of, um, some kind of craft thing that she built. It was a, um, oh, I can't remember what you call it. It's one of those things like Catholics do where they, they put all of their little statues and stuff, but she did one of those for AA. Mm -hmm. It was kind of, kind of funny. Well, you know, I, here's, here's an interesting one. The, the day of the dead is coming up. Uh huh. Uh, and I always do a day of the dead altar. Yeah. And, that's, that's what she did. She made it an altar, an AA altar. It was kind of funny. Yeah, because you can do a, an altar for forgiveness. And wouldn't it be funny to start an agnostic art program with an altar? Yeah. I'm going uh, to send you a picture of this thing that this, that she made. It is kind of funny. It's well, an, ag it's an agnostic be, AA altar. <laughs> if she would be willing to have that be part of the launch, I think yeah. it, it would be a great thing to bring in a wider group. It doesn't yeah. just be me. 
but you're you're the one who has to set up how it works and how people submit images and if they are you know if they have to be vetted in some way i think it's probably a good idea to have them filtered through someone cuz you could get some pretty raw images up there and yeah. i i think we we just need to go in with our eyes open yeah well, such uh, a good idea. Yeah, I like to see that. Well, I always kind of wanted that. I, I'm ready to just say, okay, this is the date we're going to do it, and we'll do it. Yeah. And Halloween might be a, a sort of a fun time to yeah. have that be our date. Yeah, because I work toward Halloween. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, it doesn't have to be perfect. We can start, you know, start small and then kind of build from there and figure out well, how to how to do it as we go. Why don't you look at the other art that you have and some of the pieces, like some of the ones that have been appearing on on Beyond Belief recently, I think Mm. would be very good images to have in a gallery. uh, I think that's so cool that we're doing that now, that we're having people actually create their own pictures for the um, articles and stuff. Well, you know, and I, I just, I wanted to listen to a podcast before I did this with (laughs) you. And I, and I looked at On the Road to Austin. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, and that is a beautiful photograph. I don't know where where you got that, or if if he. Oh, uh, that no, that was that, just a stock image. That was just one gorgeous. that I found. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's a it's a perfect image for that. Yeah. You got a little rainbow bridge and all yeah. that. Yeah, I think that's a real place too. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's photoshopped. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right, Copel. I really enjoyed this very much. Yeah, um, me too. I look forward to uh, seeing what what we end up doing with the the. Um, with the, with the beyond words, beyond words. Well, I think <clears throat> I think I'm ready for a Halloween launch. Okay. If that sounds like a good idea, I'll talk to some people and we'll and we'll and I, I need to talk to you about how it gets set up because okay. I was thinking there there might be a page for each step, yeah, and a page yeah. a page for amends and a page for you know so people can just put their images up in a certain place. We can do it. We can figure it yeah. out. Yeah. Okay. All good. right. Well, you have a nice uh, weekend. We'll be posting this on Wednesday, and I will send you a a preview of it so you can uh, check it on out. Well, do you want an image for it? Yeah, that'd be great. I'll send you you something. All right. Okay. All right, you take care, Coach. You too. All right, bye-bye. Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. We'll be back next week speaking with Jeff B. from the Denver Freethinkers Group. Until then, y'all take care, be well, We'll talk again real soon.